Hear the word of God from Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain for their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. What is, has already been and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And I said to myself, God will bring the judgment both of the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of all the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? This is the word of the Lord. Woo! Not as depressing as last week's reading, but not quite, not quite there yet, right? You guys are like, when are we going to read some, I don't know, something a little more encouraging, maybe a little Colossians or something, right? Whew. We are going to read Romans 8 today, so just a little foreshadowing. Wow. So this sermon is titled, How to Live in a Frustrated World. And just so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a creature of habit, and I like props, and I can't see my slides on that screen, so... I'm going to keep looking and see it as a black screen and kind of freak out. So give me, give me a minute to get used to it. Uh, I don't know why. That TV was working until about 9.30 today. So for some reason, God wants me two weeks in a row. While we're on Ecclesiastes, the passage that talks about the paradox and the, the uh, confusion of life, to be confused and keep having to turn my neck. So a little, little uh, humor to start us off. But how to live in a frustrated world. And I chose that term frustrated on purpose, and we'll hear why later. 
But I want to start with this question. How do we live well? I guess if you've hung around America for the last, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, this started coming up, how to live well, 20 years ago. And I'm sure it's always been there, but with internet and blogs and books and, you know, everybody wants to know how to live well. I uh, just Googled how to live well, and then you can click a button that says, let's get lucky or something. You know what I'm talking about? Like the Google. I never clicked that other button, but I clicked it, and this is what popped up. The Living Well website, living-well.com, but I noticed it's not secure, so it's one of those. We didn't have the little lock. I thought that was weird. But... uh, so you can live well, but you might get hacked while you're on their website. Uh, that wasn't on my notes. Um, but so this is a website. Um, there's tons of books. Oprah has dedicated a career to this. Most people come to sermons hoping to get some of this practical advice. There's Life Hacker. There's just a lot of websites dedicated to this. About 15 years ago, there was this thing called Live Strong. It started off as a cancer thing with link to Lance Armstrong, and then an outside company bought the rights to it and created a whole empire around it. Nike got in on it, and it was like, how to live well. Then, in, in typical Ecclesiastes fashion, Lance Armstrong was using drugs to enhance his performance, and we all got crushed. You know, the guy who taught us how to live well had to cheat, you know, and it, it just, it's, I think the, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, not the author, would be like, see, see, you can't do it. We all want to know, how do we live well emotionally, physically, financially? These are important things. We got to live in this life, right? And the Bible does talk about all these things. Maybe not in the way we want it to, but it definitely always talks about these things. How to, but also how to live well spiritually, both individually and community, and then in society. Do I help every person? I see. Do I help more on the evangelism front or more on the mercy front or the justice front? Which, where, how do I spend my time? When do I rest? How do I do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, humbly with God? Right? We throw that phrase out there from Micah 6, but how do we do it? Unfortunately, we come to sermons sometimes and just hope in 30 minutes the answer is going to be there. But I think part of the essence of what the teacher brings up in Ecclesiastes is that there's a lot of inconsistencies in this world. The brokenness, the sinfulness, the pain. It doesn't always make sense. I heard of this thing called the $10 dilemma where you, ask, you say, if, if you could just give $10 to save someone's life, life, would you do it? And it's kind of a, I don't know if it's a guilt thing, but... Because some organizations, if you literally gave $10, they could save someone's life through some of their programs for hunger. But then if I gave all my $10, then I don't have any money and I can't give any more $10. So like, how do you balance? How, should I make a lot of money so I can give a lot of money? Or should I just give all the money I have and live in the smallest house possible? These, these are some of the tensions that we particularly feel living in a culture where we have actually access and the capacity to make money. We're thankful for the, the country we live in and the ability to make money, but it also creates this dilemma, like the teacher in Ecclesiastes. He had access to resources, so in the access, he had to deal with, like, okay, now what do I do? Ecclesiastes' primary concern with 
three things. I summed it up. Hevel, this Hebrew word that means meaninglessness or a mist or, you know, it's a complicated word or emptiness or absurdity or filled with paradox, life and death. So last week I talked about this, this hevel, this word that's translated meaningless and mist and vanity and, and emptiness. But it's all, and today we're focusing on life, how to live. And next week I'm going to not talk about how to die, but more like how to live knowing we're going to die because the teacher deals with that. So in the first two chapters, when James read it last week, how many of you were sitting here and like heard all, James reads really slow, all eight or nine minutes of it really, were you depressed after you heard that? I mean, that's, that was sad. So in light of this reality, that's the teacher's opinion. And by the teacher, I'm using the word the NIV uses. Some translations say the preacher, but I've established the ac- most accurate translation is the assembler. It's actually the word we get our word church from. The guy gathering this group of people to have a discussion, to share. But I'm going to call him the teacher for this morning. So in light of this reality, how does the teacher ask us how to live, live our lives in light of this reality? I noticed I wrote in light of this reality twice. So, uh, What does living look like, living in quotations, in the teacher's meaningless world? What does this mean for us? Uh, sorry. And then how does the teacher see God's involvement in this meaningless world? And what does this mean for us today? So I'm going to tackle the first two questions at once. What does living look like in the teacher's meaningless world? And how does the teacher see God's involvement in this? So what is the teacher doing? I want us to, to kind of pull back. The teacher, there's the author, the guy who wrote the book, and he speaks right at the beginning. He introduces the teacher. He says, these are the teacher's words. And then the author gives a little bit of commentary at the end. We don't know who the author is. Some people think the teacher is Solomon. Some people think it's one of the other kings in Jerusalem's history. Someone, other people think it's a wise guy collecting as if he's speaking as he's Solomon or one of the kings. Either way, it doesn't change the meaning of, of the, the context itself. But you have this teacher. And what is he doing? He's reflecting on and presenting things as he sees and experiences them. And what is he not doing? He's not speaking for God. I want us to remember that. What you just read up there has some insights that are that God about God, but they're not, he's not speaking for God. I'm going to show this triangle that I put up last week. Um, and if you need to, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. But there's this, this balance of the three main wisdom books. And next week, I'll talk about why we call them wisdom literature and how that tradition came to be. But without each, they balance each other out in a beautiful way. And then the rest of the Old Testament helps us balance them, particularly Psalms. And then the rest of the Bible and the New Covenant helps us balance all of this. But I, I made it yellow. Go to the next slide. On purpose, because we need to be cautious when we read Job's Ecclesiastes and um, Proverbs. We don't read them the same way we would read Colossians or Matthew or Mark or even Deuteronomy. There's there's a genre to it, and, and we have to be cautious. So the teacher is not speaking for God. He's sharing the dilemma he feels and the problem he sees, and he's sharing some of his insights and some of his thoughts on how God is involved or how God could be involved from his perspective. He's Jewish. 
He understands the covenants. He's in the court. He, he has access to all this. And this is his perspective. So I'm going to, this morning's sermon kind of covers one, chapters 3 through 8. So I'm just going to do a, a popular outline. And I'm just going to put the outline up there. And you're, I'm just going to have you follow along with the teacher's thought pattern. So he starts off with this time for everything. The poet is describing what occurs under the sun. He's not making moral pronouncements. So all those things he's saying is this is just what happens on earth. He's not saying they're good or bad or this is what you should do. We shouldn't get deep theology from that passage. We should just get an awareness of this is the reality of the world. It's funny in church history, people have used the war and the kill passage to support or to deny war. And even there's some people during the time that they didn't want people to dance said that, no, he's not talking about male and female dancing together. He's talking about religious dance. You know, like there's there are commentaries in church history trying to defend or struggle with this. But the best thing I can tell you, it's important to emphasize. And this is from Tremper Logman, a guy who I got a lot of my material from this morning. It's important to emphasize that the poem does not advocate these emotion states or actions, but simply describes them as parts of the full spectrum of the human experience. You guys know there's a song, right? The song from the 60s, The Birds. It's a good song. Actually, that's the oldest song to ever chart in the English-speaking charts because the song lyrics are over three, probably 3,000 years old. It's a little, little trivia tidbit. If someone says, what's the oldest song to ever hit number one in America? You can say, uh, turn, turn, turn by the birds. All right, the second thing, God is working in the world. And you see his insight that Erica read earlier, you know, where he says, I know that everything God does will, will endure forever. So he has some insight into how God works, but he's just giving it from his perspective. And then he asks, where can we find justice? And then he says, I'd rather be dead than deal with the brokenness and the impression. And have you ever done that? You just kind of feel like so overwhelmed. You're like, I just don't want to deal with this. Then he goes on and talks about this lonely miser who just, maybe that's the way. Just get out of here and go live and just ignore the problems. Maybe Ebenezer Scrooge is based on this lonely miser. And then he says, it's great to have friends. True, right? Then he says, even advancement and political power will let you down. So even if you get ahead, it's still not worth it. Then he says, fear and honoring God. Then he goes into like, just fear and honor God, even when God seems distant. Like, just do what you're supposed to do. Then he says, oppression seems inevitable. That oppression is going to happen under the sun. For some reason, even though people are just going to turn to being oppressive. Once you gain power, you're going to be oppressive. Then he says that searching for the meaning and money will never satisfy. And then he goes on and he says, who can know the future? Then he starts giving Proverbs like the book of Proverbs, like actual Proverbs. And remember, when he's dabbling in these, these Proverbs and in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs are wise sayings, not God's promises. There's a way to read the Proverbs and there's a way to read Colossians and there's a way to read John. So let's, one of the things that Waypoint we want to always stress is, is how to look at different biblical genres. But he dabbles in Proverbs. The whole time he's kind of saying the Proverbs are all wrong. Now he's actually giving some Proverbs. Then he says, wisdom and righteousness don't help. Wow, that stinks. Then he says, wisdom is hard to come by. Then he says, you can seek and not find. Then he says, the wise are good. No one's like them. Be wise. 
Then he says the king's word is supreme. Basically, listen to the king and your life will be better. Kind of if you obey the government, your life will be easier. Because for some reason, that's just the way it works. And God put kings in power and that's, that's the way it is. Then he says, do bad people really get what's coming to them? He starts questioning justice again. And then he says, not even the wise know. Depressing again. Then he goes into chapter 9, everyone dies. And that's next week's sermon. So... You see how he's just, he's going at it. He's dealing with it. Uh, this is again from Tremper Logman. He, he summarizes the whole book in this whole section. He says, simply stated, the teacher's message is this. Life is hard and then you die. <laughs> he has tried to find the meaning of life in wisdom, pleasure, work, wealth, status, relationships, and has come up empty. Three factors render life meaningless. These are the three that Longman comes up with. First, death renders life meaningless. And we're going to talk about that next week. Second, injustice renders life meaningless. Uh, there's no, and you know, he's, he's like, he looks at it and he's like, man, there's too much injustice in the world. But we know this is not true because Deuteronomy doesn't teach this. It talks about when God establishes, when they get out into the land to be a place of justice. Deuteronomy is heavy on justice and creating a culture of justice. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah, who come after the teacher in Ecclesiastes, speak of God's justice. Isaiah speaks of a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, which the teacher kind of doesn't want to deal with and kind of skips. Obviously, it's, it's written before Isaiah's prophecy. And Jesus ultimately tells us that injustice doesn't render life meaningless, but it gives us a purpose to fight for Christ-like justice everywhere we go. And the third thing that the teacher notices is that is humanity's inability to discern the proper time renders life meaningless. And in this, he, he keeps talking about how meaningless life is, and then he has the six times he stops and he urges carpe diem, you know, seize the day. I made a reference to, uh, what's that movie? Uh, Dead Poet Society last week. And carpe diem is actually an ancient Latin phrase, but it's, it became popular in the vernacular of people my age from that movie. But it just means seize the day, seize the moment. Do, you know, you can't grab life by the gusto. And six times... In the teacher's dialogue between chapter 2 and chapter 9, he's like talking about all this meaningless, but then he's like, okay, God put us here. We can enjoy good things. But the best, that's the best the teacher has to offer is just try to enjoy it. It stinks. Try to enjoy it. And remember, the teacher is then corrected at the end by the author of the book with Fear God, obey his commandments, and wait for his judgment. So the teacher, again, is just assessing the problem and dealing with it. The teacher had everything. Remember when Jesus says, what good is a man has the whole world and loses his soul? When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he's like, sell everything, he's sad. So the, there's something about the teacher's perspective that we have to keep in mind. Because some of us live our lives, if I could just get this, if I could just get this, if I could just get this, then I would be happy. I'm going to make a Madam Blueberry reference, the best Veggie Tale video if you haven't seen it, if you have kids, even if you don't have kids. But if I just get this, I'll be happy. And he's kind of like, I got it all, and I'm not happy. 
But in these moments, these carpe diem moments, the teacher wants us to say you can live for God. And I'd say, where, we, where do we get a good theology of that in the Old Testament? Is in, in the Psalms. But I want us to ponder this thought. Ecclesiastes is hard. Job's hard. But imagine if our Bible didn't have Job and Ecclesiastes. Imagine if we just had Proverbs. Everyone who's suffering, everyone, even Jesus himself wouldn't make sense. Because he came and suffered. The passage we read last week, Peter, he's like, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer. And they're like, no, you're not. You know, Peter's like, no, you're not. Because they didn't get it. There's something about the brokenness that Jesus had to come into. But the Old Testament exposes this brokenness over and over again. And Ecclesiastes is part of exposing it. And Job is part of dealing with it. And without those two books, a lot of people who are suffering would have a lot harder time in life. And imagine if we didn't have the lament psalms, the psalms where we cry out. But at the same time, imagine if we didn't have Psalm 27, the trusting in God's goodness psalms, even though life is hard. David says, I remain confident of this. I will see the good of the Lord in the land of the living. And I want us to remember that it's all good. It's all God's purpose. So the teacher identifies the problem and the best solution he can come up with is try to seize some of these moments. So what does this mean for us today? So I want us to think, if we had a time machine and we could go back and see Paul, go back to the past, and then what would that look like? A little 80s references. I'm a child of the 80s. So for those of you young pups... These are two 80s movies with uh, Maggie's. My daughter's laughing at me. She's like, I know what movies those are. Sorry. Sorry, I just embarrassed her. No. If we had a time machine and we could go back and visit Paul. Let's put up Paul. This is just a picture I found on the internet when I Googled St. Paul. I have no idea what he looks like, but that looks, that looks good, right? He's got the Greek writing. If we could ask Paul some questions, or if the teacher could jump ahead after the Messiah and ask Paul some questions. So let's say it's, it's a dialogue, and it's me, the teacher from Ecclesiastes, and Paul. And Paul's seen the risen Christ, and he's experienced it. You know, he's, he, he knows the true, how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. You know, Paul was an expert in the Old Testament. He knew the law, he knew the prophets, he knew the writings. Jesus came to him on the road, the risen Christ, you know, and Paul was the major bridge for the good news, the good news of Isaiah, breaking through to the whole world. And we'd ask Paul, would we be sitting down in, like on the ground or chairs? I don't know. We'd, we'd be meeting today, so it'd be pretty cool. We'd ask Paul. We'd say, Paul, how do we make sense of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Job for that matter? Paul, brother, you know. How do we live our lives, especially when we are really discouraged and everything seems pointless and meaningless? And I think Paul would say, look at Ecclesiastes and its role in part of the Old Testament. Look at its place in redemptive history and the covenant promises of God. It's not in there by mistake. It's in there on purpose because God had a purpose for it. He says, then look at the people of the new covenant. Look at it through the lens of the good news of Jesus. Look at Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and John's gospel and Luke's gospel. They show us the teachings of Jesus, which show us how to deal 
with the teacher's dilemma. And he's like, and James and Peter have some really good stuff to say. In John, they have these great letters that we've get, God's given you. He's like, I address this in basically all my letters, how to deal with the teacher's dilemma. But in Romans 8, and he's like, but actually that's what you guys call it because I just wrote it as a letter. And then I show him my iPad study Bible that I can click a link and hyperlink to all these different comments. He's like, wow, that is so cool. I had to carry around these little papers and things and you get to just click links and jump ahead and study the whole text and multiple translations and see the original languages. He's like, wow, he's kind of fixated on, on my Logos Bible software. But when Paul stops thinking about my Logos Bible software and he's like, wow, he's like, let's read Romans 8. And he says, let's read Romans 8 for a summary of the hope and the motivation of why life is worth living and not meaningless. And then you can look to Romans 12 to 16 for some practical ways of how I exhorted and encouraged the churches in Rome to live it out in community. So how to live in a frustrated world. I'm not going to take you to some magic formula. I'm going to take you to Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. And notice I have that word highlighted in bold and italics. That's the same word. Only three times it's used in the New Testament. That's the word hevel, the meaningless word. Paul, Paul uses it twice, once in Ephesians 4 and once here, and, and Peter uses it in, in 2 Peter. The creation was sub, subjected to this meaninglessness, to this frustration, not by its own choice. So he's like, the teacher's right. It's frustrating. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. That's good hope. We know that the whole creation has been groaning at the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. This is what the teacher brings up. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. But a hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we have hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he searches and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So part of the teacher's problem is, what do we do? Well, Paul's saying the Spirit's working. This morning is Pentecost Sunday. The Spirit's been poured out. Part of the solution is us yielding to the Spirit. And then Paul goes on. He says, and we know that in all things God works to the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? Paul would just tell me exactly what he told them. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Then who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The Spirit's interceding for us. Christ is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? These are all things that the teacher identifies. Paul says, for your sake, quoting Psalm, one of the lament Psalms in that wisdom literature tradition. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul breaks the thing by quoting one of these wisdom psalms, these lament psalms. No, in all these we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers. Notice that going back and forth. You know, there's time for everything. Paul is doing a similar thing here. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I believe that would be Paul's answer to the teacher. I believe Paul would tell us, hey, read Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another. Do not repay evil for evil. I'm skipping ahead, so Jeff's probably like, what's going on? I'm just, you guys know this section. And then in verse 20, or in verse 19, he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Anybody know where this is from in the Old Testament? Proverbs, Paul's quoting again from the wisdom tradition. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul goes on in the end of this whole section where he's telling the church how to be the church, how to be a community. He says in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what Paul would tell us when we struggle like the, like the teacher struggles or when we struggle like Job struggles or we struggle like we struggle. But then Paul would say, hey, guess what, guys? Everything I wrote was a commentary on how Jesus fulfills everything I knew of the covenants that God made in the Old Testament. And he'd say the teacher himself, the author at the end of Ecclesiastes says, fear God, obey his commands and wait for the judgment, wait for his justice. And Paul would say that those are, those are the words that God gave me as I wrote to the church in Rome. But you know where I got those words? I got those words because Matthew recorded what Jesus said one day on the mount. And Jesus says, And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon... Again, going back to this wisdom tradition, and all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? See how he's dealing with a lot of the issues, that the, te- the brokenness, the worry. The teacher's like, if you look at the world, it's just too overwhelming. And Jesus is like, no, you don't, I'm with you. And Jesus says, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. So Jesus knows what we need. And this is the essence of this section. Jesus says this, but seek first the kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble in its own. How to live in a frustrated world? The best advice we can learn from Ecclesiastes is what the author says at the end. Fear God, which means trust his goodness and faithfulness. Obey his commandments and wait for his justice and judgment. And that's what I believe the essence of what Paul's saying in Romans 8 and carries on into Romans 12. And that's what Jesus, the essence, one of the, the key teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Just today, we've seen two videos already. And we're going to watch one more in a few minutes. Joan Long's today is her 90th birthday. We have a member who's 90 years old. And we made a commitment. If anybody in Waypoint turns 90, we will have a birthday party for you. But because of COVID and some people are still, you know, some of our congregation is still figuring things out. We're not going to have the party today, but we are going to watch the video. So we're three videos today. We watch a video about there's a crisis around the world where the average person in some places has to walk up to six kilometers you know, what is that? 3.72 miles. We got the, thank you, Ben. 3.72 miles just to get clean water. That's the average distance in some of these places where World Vision serves. That's sad. But then we're raising money and awareness and, and people around the world are rallying to, to help fight this. Rejoice. So you see there's a time for sadness, a time for rejoicing. We heard about Colombia. It's sad, really, really sad. All we can do is pray. Literally, all we can do is pray. We're going to celebrate Joan Long, but it's sad that we can't be here. We can't have the big blowout that Lawrence loves, you know, with the big water slides and all that and the big cake. Because COVID, we're we're still not back in full swing. So you see how even today, even in the life of our church, there's time to rejoice and a time to mourn, a time to celebrate in the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that we are a part of, that we are building, that God has called us to be, the local church that gets to be this community that's a part of building this global kingdom, there is a time to rejoice, and there's a time to laugh and celebrate, but there's also a time to lament and cry. There's a time to slow down, but then there's a time to speed up. There's a time to sow, to share the good news, to, to spread seeds everywhere, and then there's a time to reap. There's a time to build up the body, to just let's scale back and do discipleship well and make sure that we're all healthy and, and we're ready and we're filled with the Spirit and we're focused on the things of God. And then there's a time to send out the body. We can't stay inside all the time. We've got to go out and reach the world, share it with the world, show the world the love of Christ. There's a time to protect yourself. Sometimes you just have to you know, even in the church, there's a brokenness in the church. There's a time to protect yourself, but then there's a time to take correction. And I, I believe the New Testament letters helps us flesh all this out. 
There's a time to let the Holy Spirit lead you through personal study and prayer. And the, but then there's also a time to let the Holy Spirit lead you through the corporate body. We can't be individual Christians. We have to be part of the body. There's a time to be a friend and a time to need a friend. Remember both of those times. There's a time to stop and reflect on the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world and, and just lament and pray. And then there's a time to lament and pray and get out and fight. Fight for justice, fight for what's right. There's a time to stop and just listen, like Job's friends did at the beginning, and they should have probably done a little longer. And then there's a time to speak truth. There's a time to struggle, to wrestle, to cry out, God, why are you doing this? I don't know why. Are, why? And then there's a time to just stop and trust God. Everybody take a deep breath right now. Breathe in the goodness of God. Breathe in his spirit. And I believe Paul would tell us exactly what he told the church of Rome, churches in Rome. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, the teacher brings up so many of life's realities. He hits home over and over again. And everybody in the, this room, if they're honest with themselves, including me, would say, wow, there's a lot of times when life is, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm just sick of this. I'm sick of that. The inconsistencies, they're mad at others. They're mad at God. But God, you gave us your word and you gave us your promises and you say that your spirit intercedes for us and Jesus himself is seated, seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. God, we thank you that you did not abandon us. We thank you that you are with us. Show us how to be the body. Show us how to live in this kingdom that you've given us and be your people. And may we just stop and trust in you. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your goodness. We just give you all the praise. I pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.